We have uh, been at this fellowship for, I just checked on my wife this morning, the brains of the outfit, for about a year and a half now. I think it was a year ago last June we first started coming here. And what I have appreciated about this church is I feel at home here. Number one, I feel at home because we both shared this a number of months ago. I look forward to Sunday. And I, always, I didn't always feel that way. In some churches, you know, you got problems, whatever. But number two is, I, I kiddingly joke with Rod, I got to find something that I could disagree with him on. It's really wonderful <clears throat> when you are at, at one with, with a pastor with the pulpit. And so I'm very comfortable with that. The subject of the Lord's Supper, J.D. asked me about a month ago if I would fill in, and I panicked as usual. And, and I thought, well, give me, a, give me a few days to think about it. Well, it didn't take me long. Whenever I've been asked to preach before, usually the Lord has impressed a scripture or something like that on my heart. And for some time now, the subject of the Lord's Supper has been rolling around in my mind, just different truths, just surfacing and so on. And so, I, okay, I'll go with it. Uh, I, the, the fellows just sometime back did a, a thing on the, uh, the Reformers. They talked about some of the false doctrines, about the Lord's Supper, transubstantiation, things like that, you know. I used to work with a guy, rode with him, who was a very legalistic church, and he wrote it out for me, explained that taking the Lord's Supper, you keep yourself saved. Oh, the good shepherd doesn't do a good enough job. He who said, of all you have given me, I have lost none except the son of perdition. He can't do it. I've got to do it myself. So you see, if something depends on me, that's a problem. That's not a doctrine of grace if it depends on me. There's a scripture, another scripture, and I'm sorry I didn't give you this earlier, Rod, because it just, just the last few days been working over me. John 13.1, it says, Jesus said, uh, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. I'd just like you to just don't memorize, well, you can't, but just keep that in the back of your mind, a little roll around, Okay. There was a, a preacher who shared, he, he grew up in a mission field, he grew up in Africa. His father was a missionary to Africa. And he shared one thought that I've never forgotten. It's only been almost 40 or 50 years. He said in some of the villages in Africa, the people would hold the elements, the bread and the cup, literally for hours. My mouth dropped open. And yet, that was, that to me, it was such an eye-opener that I really began to focus on that, to take time to, to, to dwell on the Lord's Supper, to focus, to try to approach the Lord's table in a worthy manner. As, as, as Rod mentioned in our former church, I was an elder, in, and one of my duties every Sunday was to lead in the Lord's Supper, and we did it every Sunday. And that can be dangerous. That can be dangerous because ho-hum, another day, another communion. And that's unworthily. That's an unworthy manner. 
And so I, I worked, I worked, tried to work hard. I would stand up like Rod does on a Sunday morning before communion and kind of get us in the mood to think about what we're doing. Hold the elements, focus. Going back to that story of the Africans holding for hours. In verse 23, For I received of the Lord what I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the night we betrayed, took bread. I want, to stop. I want to stop myself for just a minute. Your translation, ESV, says took bread and gave it. The old King James took bread and broke it, and, you know, and so on. Now, I'm not going to try to explain the difference because I'm not smart enough, okay? But I do want to bring up a point. You remember when Jesus, you know, the story of the crucifixion, when Jesus is dying on the cross? And in John 19, it said that he, he bowed his head and, and gave up the spirit. And then it goes to say that because they didn't want the bodies left on the crosses over Passover, they came to break their legs. In crucifixion, you had to push up to breathe. Think of the pain, the agony. And, but if the legs were broken, you couldn't push up and you would asphyxiate. So they wouldn't stay on the, night, uh, on the cross for two or three days. And so they came to the first thief and broke his legs. They came to the second thief, broke his legs. They came to Jesus. They did not break his legs because he was already dead. And then, in, this is in John 19, I'm sorry, I should have, John 19, verse 33 and verse 36. In verse 36, it says, they did this because the scripture had said, not a bone of his body will be broken. This comes from the Old Testament, Exodus, the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, verse 30, uh, 30 where do I got it? <laughs> I'm sorry, 1246, Exodus 12, chapter, verse 46. The lamb. Passover lamb. God had told the Israelites, you bring a lamb into your home and you roast it. And, but you don't divide it. If it's, if it's too big for your little family, you bring in more people. You bring in more people. If you don't finish the lamb, then you burn it. You roast the whole thing. But not a bone is to be broken. Now, my point is this. Why is God so hung up on not of a bone of the lamb's body be broken? Because the lamb was the Passover lamb speaks of Christ, and with Christ, not a bone was to be broken. What's the message that God is saying here? Christ is not divided. He's not in any way divided. You can't separate him. I grew up thinking you you accepted Jesus Christ, your personal Savior. Then if he did a good enough job, you accept him as your Lord. No, that's to divide. He is Lord and Savior throughout the Gospels. He's the Lord. Jesus Christ won. So I come to the significance of the bread. Imagine now you're holding the bread. You're maybe taking a lot of time. You're thinking about it. You're pondering on it. For that little piece of flat bread, if you please, to be bread, it started out as wheat. And somebody went out and they harvested the wheat. They take the side of the wheat and it would be cut off and and uh, I'm going to be uh, going a lot through the book of Isaiah, chapter uh, 53. You might want to put a marker there, chapter 53 of, of Isaiah. This is, so, this is messianic, speaking of the suffering of Christ. In chapter 53, verse 8, 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who consider he was, that he was cut off from the land of the living? Cut off, instantly cut off. And so for the wheat to become bread, it has to be harvested first. Then it has to be, it has to be uh, crushed. Now, it's interesting. I, 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 like the, I like the ESV on this. The old King James says, uh, Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. King James said he was bruised for our iniquities. Now, maybe back in the 16th century that was very meaningful. I had a lot of bruises. The older you get, you do hard work, you crawl into the house, you're under a car, you wake up all kinds of, or get up all kinds of bruising. It's just, they're not serious. They're not life-threatening. You know, they're just ugly. But the idea of crushing, that's something else. In, in the in ESV, it says, for he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed. Here we picture the, the wheat being crushed. It's not ready to become wheat and be, because it, before it becomes a meal, a powder. Chapter 53, verse 10, it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. So we see this picture of Christ uh, I used to like to say, when we look at the bread, we realize Christ went through some serious pain. And not only physical pain, but inward pain. Uh, in, in Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus is in the garden. And he's speaking to the disciples, the guys that could barely stay awake. You remember that? He's speaking to them. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. The old King James says, my soul is sore amazed. We just finished Christmas. The, the shepherds were sore afraid, you know, the old King James. And the idea is, here is a man who is beside himself with anxiety. The very, the very weight of the sins of God's people are beginning to crush down. He's going to be facing the cross in just a few short hours. And in my opinion, only the God-man could endure that. Uh, any other man would go just totally insane. He, he's rejected, Isaiah 53, uh, 3. He is, uh, he's uh, rejected of men, a man of sorrows. Uh, John 1, 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. So a, a physical uh, crushing, if you please, and yet not a bone broken, because it's talking about a different kind of crushing. It's talking about the wrath of God poured out upon him. And I want you to think about something. This was solo. This was all by himself. You remember when he's in the garden? Not the garden. The uh, wilderness? Remember when he's in the wilderness? He goes 40 days and 40 nights without food. And then after it's over, the tempted, tested by Satan. And then after it's all over, it says angels came and ministered to him. Not so here. Not so here. Even the disciples can't stay awake. He is alone. He is all alone, and he's suffering alone. Is there a reason for this? There's a reason for this. Is this, that Jesus Christ alone is our substitute. He alone is our Savior. If some angel had come and helped him, they would say, well, we are, have salvation through Jesus Christ and maybe Gabriel. Maybe he helped a little bit too. But no, it's through him and through him alone. And so we have the wheat being cut off, cut off from the land of the living. We have the wheat being crushed, made into a meal. 
And then what do you do with a meal? You, you mix it and you make a, a, a dough. And what do you do then? What happens then? It's put to the fire. It's put in the oven. Isaiah 53:12 says, "Therefore I will divide a him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgression. He poured out his soul to death." Chapter 53, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In verse 6, all we have, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We just, just finished Christmas. I think the best thing about Christmas is the music. I love it. I love it. There's so much of gospel and Christmas carols, Christmas songs. But my favorite is Handel's Messiah. And, and Handel did such a great job in his text. One of the songs, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And it goes on and on and on, a bunch of dumb sheep. And then the chorus changes. The choir comes on. If you remember this, you people who know music. The, the choir is saying, and the Lord has laid on him. Another, another part of the choir, has laid on him, has laid on him, has laid on him. You see this, this crushing weight of our guilt being laid on him. And then it's silence and almost a dirge, the iniquity of us all. He had a good idea what, what this was all about. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's, that's just the bread. That's just a bread. We haven't come to the cup yet. Haven't come to the cup yet. In verse 25 and 20, I'm sorry. Verse 25 and 26. I haven't done this for three years. Cut me a little slack. <laughs> In the same way also he took a cup saying after supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink, uh, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, if, if we, being a bunch of Gentiles, were sitting there with the disciples, it wouldn't really mean a lot, unless maybe you're an old-time Christian and you kind of got a little grip on the, the new covenant. But if you were a Jew, if you were a Jew, you exactly what he's saying. Your mind would jump to Jeremiah 31. And you might want to go there, because I'm going to be reading from this. Jeremiah 31. Uh, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's interesting because the author of Hebrews takes this, and in Hebrews 8, he repeats it. And in Hebrews 10, two chapters away, he repeats it again. And I might add, this is the new covenant in my blood. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter uh, 9, verse 17. He writes, a will takes effect only at death. A will takes a place only at death. We all probably have wills. Trust. Kids don't get a cent until you're gone. They don't get a cent. This is the new covenant in my blood. Within, a, within 24 hours, 
the new covenant would be initiated, be set in, in motion. Let me read that new covenant. Oh, before I do that, let me just say, this new covenant is what they call unilateral, one way. Let me explain. I'm in uh, I, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was a husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Let me take the first one. The law would be inward. There's a contrast here. The Old Testament, God says to the Israelites, you will make little, little writing, little, little uh, write out portions of the law. You put them in little tubes. You, put, you hang them around your, hang them, you know, at your eyelids and so on. Always being reminded. God's law. And then you go back, remember Schindler's List. All the Jewish homes had these little things by the door. Little uh, saying, phylacteries, I think they're called. Little portions of scriptures written. Here he says, I will write, uh, I will, uh, This is the covenant I make with the house of Israel after the day to go. I will put my law within them and write them on their hearts. If you check with uh, Hebrews chapter 8, it's a cheap, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, and chapter 10, verses 16 through 16 and 17. Hebrews chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. Okay? Put them in my minds, write them in their hearts. Interestingly, in first chapter 10, uh, verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16. After those days, I will put my law in their hearts. And write them in their minds. He got it reversed. Is Paul confused? Is the author of Hebrews confused? Or is he trying to say, I will put my laws inside. Instead of outward, instead of something required to do something outward, I will write my laws in their hearts and their minds. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love, how I love Thy law. Same 119th Psalm, verse 165. Great peace have they who love your law. It, it, it's one thing to know God's word. It's none, one thing to know God's will in your life. It's another thing to say, Lord, I love it. I love it. It's a part of It's my heart. Paul wrote in... Romans 7, verse 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Note the context. Here's the guy that wrote most of our New Testament. Here's the guy that's revealing the struggle we have with the old man, the sin nature. That which I would, I do not. 
that which I would not, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. I find a principle in myself when I would do good of evil. Then he says this, I delight in the law of God. See, unregenerate people do not light, delight in the law of God. Unsafe people do not love God's law. They don't love it. They don't delight in it. By the way, he's the same, he's the same guy that said in, in 1 Corinthians 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, present tense, chief. The secondly, second thing he says in, in Jeremiah chapter 31 uh, is a personal, personal knowledge of God himself. Uh, and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they uh, shall all know me from the leadest, least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 54, 13, your children, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, my Father, my dear Father. That, that love for God. 1 Peter, I love this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. I use the illustration at times. There's not a person in this room who knows what Jesus Christ looks like. And yet, the Bible says that 2,000 years ago, this Jew was executed by the Romans. And yet, every true Christian believes in him with all their heart. That doesn't make sense. That defies logic. And yet, because of the Holy Spirit working, taking the word of God, convincing us of reality, Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever worships God must worship, worship him in spirit and in truth, in spirit and reality. A little gospel song. Spirit, loved by everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know, Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me, it is so. Jesus said in John, he who believes in the Son not will have everlasting life, but does have everlasting Now, has everlasting life. It's a, it's a, it's a proof. Our faith is a proof of, of, of the indwelling Spirit, of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the last point of the New Covenant is, I think, so sweet. There, there are some verses here that are they're so precious. They're like a, a glass of cold water when you've been working hard and you're extremely thirsty. This is, this is it. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Psalm chapter 32, verse 12, David writing, he says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord, against the Lord counts no iniquity. The old King James, who the Lord will not impute unrighteousness, iniquity. Blessed is that man. That's God's word. That's God's word. That's not my word. 
uh, their sins and their iniquities, I will remember them no more. Does this mean God has a bad memory? Does the omniscient God who never learns anything, the omniscient God who knows everything there is to know, does he get forgetful? Or is this a legal term? In God's court of law, it will not be brought up. It will not be inadmissible evidence. I will remember it no more. Chosen, I will not remember it. Why? Because he has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all, all of God's people, all true believers. Another one precious, precious verse. When you, when you, when you hear what it says, it says, well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever. Who? Those who keep their act together. Those who have come up to the standard. Those who are good church people. Those who never make mistakes. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified in the process. Oh, man. That is such good news. That is such good news. <laughs> uh, Charles Spurgeon had a good expression. He said, you know, when it comes to the sins of God's people, God exhausted his complete artillery. He's saying to God's people, I have no bullets left. And this is why I said before, Christ had to suffer alone because all of God's wrath was laid on him and him alone. And now I come to verse 28, examination. I kind of have a hard time with this, I've got to admit. Uh, I, 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 when I was a young person, I never was comfortable at communion because I didn't feel worthy enough. I didn't realize that was an adverb, not an adjective. The, the adjective describes me. The adverb describes an action. Not discerning the Lord's body. But I want to back up for a minute. I want to back up to verse 28 in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I want, I want to... I hope I'm not... Uh, I hope I'm not straining at a gnat. I really do. But here's what I want you to think about. If you go through the Gospels... It was the night of the Passover. It was the night of the Last Supper. None of the, the, the uh, gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nor, none of them ever mentioned the night when Jesus was, was betrayed. Only Paul does this in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember I, I asked you to keep, consider in mind that, that verse, John, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And then, only Paul says this. For on the night in which our Lord is betrayed, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Why, why are we, the Holy Spirit's not glib. I am. The Holy Spirit never says what doesn't need to be says, said, but he doesn't leave out what needs to be said. Why does he say on the night with which they were betrayed? Think about this now. Judas had just left to betray him. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Peter, within hours, is going to deny he knew him with an oath three times before daylight. The rest were going to run. Only John was going to come back, and guess who was standing around the cross? Women. But to whom did, did, did our Lord leave the institution of the Last Supper? Communion, the Lord's Supper. What, what to whom did he leave? A bunch of losers. 
You know, they, these, this group, if you please, represent a lot of us. You see, I could understand Jesus upset. I could understand, boy, he's really getting on their case. You know, you guys are... Because he said it just after that. They go out to the garden, you know, and he says, all of you will be scattered because of me. You'll be scattered. You'll run like thieves. And yet it's to this group that he gives the Lord's Supper. It's these people. I don't know about you. You ever feel unworthy? You ever feel, Lord, I've, I've seen people do it, and I don't judge them. I don't, don't take me wrong. I see people pass over the Lord's Supper because they don't feel worthy. Well, I've almost come to the conclusion, I wouldn't build a church on this, but I almost come to a conclusion that if everything makes me worthy, it's my sense of unworthiness. Because I, I hold the, the elements, I hold the, the bread, and I contemplate the sufferings of Christ. It was for me. It was for sinners. And I'm a sinner. Uh, I hold a cup. Man, that cup, that new covenant... It's one way, Lord. You're not depending on Glenn Sterling. He's going to blow it. I know it. He's, God, it, it's one way. It's grace, pure grace. Verse 28, let a person examine himself. And then what does it say next? Well, let the cup pass. I won't take it today because I don't feel I should. Let a man examine... Oh. Let a man examine himself. Some churches, the elders or whatever, go out and they come to your home. Boy, isn't that threatening? Come again, come to your home. Say, okay, Glenn, how you doing, bud? Yeah, right. <laughs> we can all find reasons that we're not doing as well as we should. That's the human condition. But it doesn't say that. It says, let a man examine himself, and then let the cup pass. No, that's not what the Scripture says. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat and drink. What's the idea here? All right, I sit down, and it's not so much I'm examining myself to say, Lord, am I good enough? I'm examining the body. In fact, in fact it says, not discerning the Lord's body. What's this all about? Is this something that's making me better? Am I becoming a better Christian? Am I improving on the work of Christ? Or am I examining what this is all about? That Christ suffered, bled, and died for my sins. And he, by his own work, has made me acceptable with God. Finally, I know. <laughs> Finally, verse 24 and 26. Let me read this. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body, which is for this. This do for what? In remembrance of me. It's not about me, it's about him. This do in remembrance of me. And then verse 26, he says, as, for off, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Next Sunday, we are going to be right here. The message will be done, and Rod will be standing here, kind of preparing us for, for the Lord's Supper. And then we will go and partake, you know, pick it up over here and come to our seats. But you're going to be doing something maybe you never thought you'd ever do.
You're going to be preachers that day. Silent preachers. <laughs> it says that as often you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, by your actions, proclaim the Lord's death till he come. I hope this week some of the things that may be said, I hope, will, will help us to, to focus on the sufferings of Christ. Focus on the death of Christ and what that means. Totally forgiven. Not held to a standard. Jesus was held to that standard and he was crucified. He held in our place. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We pray, God, that some of the things said this morning may stay in our hearts. And Lord, that somehow in our own hearts that you may grow in your suffering and your death in our place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.